Hello, my name is Ben, and welcome to Season 2 of the Deconstruct Podcast, a show where we take a closer look at the music that people know and love, and try to figure out what makes it tick. In this episode, we're getting down to basics, and we're discussing the physics and math of how music works. Now, I know what you're thinking. I thought this was a music podcast, not a math podcast. Well... I hate to break it to you, but the music that you've been listening to all your life has math woven into its very fabric. But before we can talk about that, let's first ask, what is sound? Well, if you've ever put your hand up to a subwoofer, then you'll know that speakers move air. And so you may deduce that the moved air is what sound is. And you'd be right. Sound is just vibrating air. So now the question arises... How does one actually make sound? Well, the air can't just vibrate on its own. It has to get its energy from a physical object. Well, except thunder. Thunder is just air actually moving through its own means. But I digress. Once you get an object vibrating, it has two directions that it can go. In and out. When the object's surface moves in, it creates a vacuum that air molecules want to fill. So then they fill that, but now that they filled that gap, they've now left a space where they were once in, and now to fill that vacuum, other air molecules fill that gap, and so on and so forth, and that's how sound actually spreads. And in other cases, when the surface of the instrument moves out, it pushes into the air molecules, which pushes into the air behind it, and so on and so forth. But before we even get to that, before we can even make sound by that, we need to have instruments that can move air like that. And that's what musical instruments are for. Most of the time, instruments can vibrate because of a constant struggle between the energy keeping them in shape and the energy created by either striking it or blowing air through them. It's a bit like a pendulum against gravity. Now imagine, if you will, a string suspended between two points. The energy keeping that string taut is pulling the center of the string towards the end of the string. Now, imagine if we pull the string back. Now, the force of tension is at an angle from where it was before, and we can break that force into two components, one which will bring the center towards the middle again, and one which is going to keep the tension in the string once it returns to center. But once the string is released, the center goes back to where it was to start. But once it's there, there's nothing stopping this momentum, since all the forces that are still in play are now perpendicular to the moving string. In other words, the tension in the string is strong enough to bring it back to the center, but not strong enough to stop the momentum once it's back in place. And so it moves away from rest, and the cycle continues again. Instruments have their own ways of producing sounds. And so musicologists, the people who study music for a living, have categorized the ways of making sound into five distinct categories. The first of these are adiaphones. These are instruments that don't need other tools in order to be able to generate sounds, other than some energy at the onset in their pitch. They don't need to be stretched or have air blown over them or have electricity sent through them to make sound once the sound making process has begun. These include mallets like the xylophone, triangles, juice harps, and instruments as esoteric as a singing saw. 
The second of these categories are membranophones. These are instruments that in their intrinsic forms are two-dimensional and flat, but they also need to be stretched so that they can be taut enough to want to snap back into place. Most examples in the West include drums, where the instrument is struck, but they can also make sound by rubbing, as in a thumb roll on a tambourine, or they can modify existing sounds like a kazoo. The third category is chordophones. They're like membranophones, but one-dimensional. These include all sorts of string instruments, like orchestral strings, guitars, zithers like the auto harp, actual harps, and many more. The fourth category is aerophones, in which the instrument itself isn't vibrating much, but most of the sound is from the instrument creating an environment in which the air can vibrate just through the structure of the chamber it's in. These include free reed instruments like harmonicas, and wind instruments like pretty much every instrument in your local high school band. The fifth category is electronic instruments, which not only includes instruments like synthesizers and theremins, also acoustic instruments with electrical elements like a guitar with a magnetic pickup to plug into an amp. In this system, the speaker that you're listening to me with right now is technically also an instrument, but unlike the others, it most likely works by having a magnet repelling and attracting a driver from electrical signals to imitate normal instrument's operation. So now we have sound, but what does it mean if we have no way of picking it up? Well, that's what the ear is for. Most of the elements of the ear are a Rube Goldberg machine of transferring the sound waves to the inner ear, where the cochlea lies. Now, the cochlea is where the magic of hearing actually happens. Inside, there are thousands of tiny little hairs that can pick up the individual frequencies of sound, or how fast or slow the air is vibrating at. These are made specifically so that if they were to be played like an instrument, don't ask how that would work, then they would all vibrate at different frequencies. But if a sound hits at the same frequency that it would vibrate at normally, it's going to get pushed and pulled in the exact same way that it would normally vibrate at, and so it'll resonate in sympathy. If a, direct if a different frequency hits it, then the vibration that the hair wants to go at is different than what the air is doing, and so it's not going to respond. The side effect of this is that each hair is going to move in response to only one frequency of sound, and in the same way that a hair moving on your skin can get felt and the signals from that sent to the brain, these hairs vibrating in sympathy with the air get signals sent to the brain and can be synthesized into the perception of sounds. So now that we can pick up sound, where can we find music? Well, we could be like John Lennon when he meant Yoko Ono and just start making random sounds and call that music and also cuckold your wife. But there's some things that make our brains like certain sounds over others. The one big thing that our brains can pick up on is the ratios between frequencies and sounds. In a way, it boils down to how the harmonic series works. Now, 
when we were talking about how sound is made, I implied that there's only one pitch that can be made by a single instrument. That's not strictly true. For example, many drums don't even have a discernible single pitch. Instead, they can generate a bunch of different pitches with a single strike, and our ears just interpret that as noise. But in cases like guitars and horns, yes, there's a single pitch that can be generated, but other pitches can be generated on top of it. For example, if I pluck a string on my bass and I lightly tap the halfway point on the string, you'll hear that there's a new pitch higher than the original, or so it would seem. In truth, that higher pitch was there all along. <laughs> but I digress. This happens because a string is capable not only of vibrating at its bass pitch, it's fundamental, but also at twice the frequency, at three times, at four times, and so on. Theoretically into infinity, but realistically you'll never hear more than 20 pitches above the original. These other pitches are called overtones. Together, the fundamental and its overtones are called harmonics, and even though these are all different pitches, our brain evolved to be able to group these together and see them as one note. But the different amounts of the overtones define a sound's quality, or timbre. It's spelled timbre, but it's pronounced timbre. Don't get it confused, or else internet people will yell at you. Anyway, this relationship is so strong that even when a fundamental doesn't exist, any two or three frequencies that relate back to a common fundamental still sound good to us, still sounds consonant to us. And we can also do the same with different instruments playing together. If I play three separate notes on a keyboard, for example, the fourth, fifth, and sixth harmonics of a fundamental, your brain still classifies them as a single pitch, if not to the same extent as with a single note. In this case, we call this grouping a major chord. And by selecting different ratios from the fundamental, we could establish scales from which to pick notes to construct melodies. A ratio of 1 to 1 is unison, 9 to 8 is a second, 5 to 4 is a third, 4 to 3 is a fourth, 3 to 2 is a fifth, 5 to 3 is a sixth, 16 to 15 is a seventh, and 2 to 1 is an octave. And the 2 to 1 is so strong that almost every culture in the world has this ratio built into their music. By the way, you may notice that when I'm playing some of these here, they sound slightly different than the intervals you can get on a home piano. The difference sounding something like this. The reason for that is because getting all of the notes in tune to one fundamental can be easy, but choosing any of those notes to be a fundamental poses challenges. For example, if I stack perfect fifths, they each have a ratio of 3 to 2 before. But when we stack intervals, we multiply their frequencies. And so if I do this, so it loops back to about where we were at the start, we can almost get back to the beginning note. But by this point, we've multiplied by 3 over 2 so many times that the note is now a ratio of 531,441 to 524,288 back to the original. This is what happens when you multiply prime numbers. You're never going to get a power of 3 that's divisible by 2. It's just maths.
In the West, we've chosen to fix this by foregoing having nice intervals in favor of regular intervals, so that the ratio between one note and the one immediately above it is the twelfth root of two to one. And the nice thing about this is that the difference between these regular intervals and the nice ratios isn't that pronounced a lot of the time. So we can live with this so that we don't end up with this. But for now, just forget about that and let's think back to simpler ratios because that's what your brain is thinking of it anyways, what we call just intonation. So what happens when we upset this balance of simpler ratios to a fundamental? Well, this is where dissonance comes in. One of the most simple dissonances we have as musicians is the tritone, which in simple terms is a ratio of 7 to 5. You'll never find this if you take the notes on the harmonic series and drop them by octaves to the fundamental, so our ears don't like it that much. It's not that easy to find a relationship back to the fundamental. And so this concept that we can't find a common fundamental, we can take it and run with it. If we take our 4, 5, 6 chord, the major chord, and invert the intervals so that the size we have in the bottom is now on the top and vice versa, we now have a minor chord. It's kind of stable, but also not totally consonant. And we can be cool and funky like jazz chords where we're pulling in harmonics from like 30 or 40 up in the harmonic series. Or we can go full demonic with chords that have no business being in the world, like pretty much everything Stravinsky did before the First World War. So now we have consonants and dissonance, but how does one go from one to the other? Through voice leading. If the parts of a chord can be called voices, then creating melodic lines for them bridges the gap between the consonances and dissonances. If we take the 7 to 5 from earlier, the tritone, we can resolve the voices together to be a major third, which does have the tonic in the bottom note so our ears can find it more consonant. It's easier to find the fundamental. And these lines individually are sensible, neither have disjointed leaps and they flow seamlessly from one note to the next. And if we design a chord around it, we have the fundamental component of a dominant to tonic relationship. And it's around this one chord change that almost all of Western music of the past 400 years has been in service to. Hence why sequences that are based around this are called functional harmony. But it doesn't have to be this way. Musicians have often used other means of resolving tension by voice leading. In fact, in season one of this show, we talked about how Gustav Holtz created a whole section of a piece just by building somewhat unrelated chords around two melodic lines so that this becomes this. And so, now hopefully you can have a bit more of a framework to understand what music is doing. We talked about the way that sound works in practice, how it's generated and moves through the air and is picked up by your ears, and how aspects of that create the harmonic series around which all harmony is based. We talked about how constructing around the harmonic series creates consonants and upsetting that can create dissonance that can be resolved by voice leading. And that's our show. If you want to catch me other places, firstly, I DJ regularly at WICB. On Tuesdays at 12, I have Jazz Shift. And on Sundays, 12 to 2, we have an all Beatles show. Uh, for those not in the IC area, we can't get it to you just yet, but we might have planned brewing that can get 
the show out to a wider world. And I'm releasing an album. It's called Tramway, and it ranges in styles from a modern acoustic pop to jazz to Motown. It's available for purchase now on Bandcamp, and it's available for streaming the 20th. The lead single is available for streaming, so you can get an idea of what you're getting yourself into. Links to all of these are in the description. Thanks so much for listening. My name is Ben, and I'll see you all in two weeks' time for the next episode of the Deconstruct Podcast.